Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. When we talk about estate wineries, we often focus on the viticultural nitty-gritty. Go to a trade tasting, and the first thing people want to hear about is the detailed farming practices. People want to know what you sprayed, how you trained your vines, what the soil composition is. And for all this discussion of sustainable farming and natural winemaking, rarely are we asking wineries to hire ethically. California agriculture has historically taken advantage of migrant workers, which is why this week we are discussing labor practices with winery owner Pete Stoltman and vineyard manager Ruben Solorzano. In addition to making some of the best Syrah in California, Stoltman Vineyards hires a year-round vineyard crew, and 10% of the winery's total production goes into the La Quadria project, which is a specific cuvee made by the vineyard crew members who receive the profits of the wine's total sales. Ruben and Pete made time for me uh, on the eve of bottling of all days. Uh, They were about to bottle the new vintage of La Quadria, the very next day. So uh, very much appreciate them taking time to hang out and chat with me. Also, I'm really excited because this is the first episode that features more than two people. So that's cool. (laughs) But uh, in all seriousness, Pete and Ruben are amazing people, and I'm excited for you to hear from them how much they love Syrah. So uh, we'll just jump right in. Cool. Well, this is exciting. Pete, I haven't seen you since you were maybe in Houston last when we had a couple of Underbergs together. And Ruben, I've heard so much about you, but we've never officially met. So this is very exciting to get both of you in the same virtual room, at least. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about this. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great conversation and I think it's an important one for us to be having, kind of thinking about like um, sustainable farming practices from like a hiring and labor standpoint. I think it's uh, something that's worth digging into a little bit. And I have loved pouring Stoltman wines when I started uh, putting together the wine program for Houston's restaurant. One of the first things I did was I created a Syrah section and y'all Syrah was the, uh, by the glass, the estate Syrah. It was, it was super great to be able to pour that alongside uh, some of the food that we were serving there. So it was great. Well, thank you for the support. Yeah, everyone's doing okay in in the period of the core. Uh, Pete, I know we chatted a little bit earlier, but y'all are holding up okay in all this. Yeah, I, we're we're hanging in there, and our, our kids are doing great. Um, I have a three year old and an almost one year old, and they've really blossomed having both mom and dad home a lot more. And I know uh, Omar Ruben's son, who's uh, is he nine? 10. He will be 11 in September. That's right. Oh, nine Harvest, baby. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he's uh, having a lot of fun uh, playing more video games than ever with all his friends remotely. That's funny. Yeah. That's good. Well, cool. I figured maybe a good place for us to start would kind of zoom in slowly from the big picture of Central Coast and kind of dial us in to Santa Barbara County, within Santa Barbara County, Santinez, and then in from Santinez to uh, Ballard Canyon. Kind of just giving people a lay of the land a little bit about where we are within California. Yeah, I can jump in and then I'll let uh, Ruben add um, his thoughts. But, you know, we've been farming our vineyard for 30 years now, and everything that we've learned has been, you know, how to adjust viticultural best practices to the very particular uh, climate that we have in Santa Barbara. You know, a lot of people think of Santa Barbara as being, 
Southern California, but we're just north of the border of Southern California and the Central Coast. Um, so if you look at the map of California, we're out on the point and the mountain range that creates that elbow of California, it's running east-west, really unusual. Um, but that that ridge line below it to the south is a totally different weather pattern often than what we're getting to the north of the ridge in the Central Coast. So we have the cold Arctic Ocean flowing down from the north, the same ocean that's south of Washington State, Oregon, Northern California. Uh, but what happens when it hits that, that point is you have a warmer weather pattern below it. So you're kind of hitting the end of that cold flow. Being cold, the cold air wants to push in inland and low. And then behind us, the extraordinary thing is that the, the gigantic Sierra Nevada mountain range is ending to our, like call it a hundred miles to our east. That opens up the entire Mojave Desert to us, which is one giant continental convection, one big vacuum of hot air rising, creating a vacuum, sucking that cold air right through us in Ballard Canyon um, to, to fill the void. So you have a push of cold air with nowhere to go off the point, and then you, you have a pull of the desert. So we are in a wind tunnel. Mm -hmm. uh, Ballard Canyon especially, because we're unsheltered up in the hills with a bit of elevation, but you get that in Santa Maria, in Santa Rita Hills, and Los Olivos, Happy Canyon. That's the one common thing of the county. So even when you get warmer, like, the higher peak heat in Happy Canyon, you mm -hmm. still get really cold nights and you still get the wind. Um, so even that Happy Canyon Cabernet is going to be way different than what you're going to get in a warmer night like Napa Valley. Um, so Santa Barbara is really unique because we're unsheltered from the ocean. And then because we're down at about 34 degrees latitude, um, we have a much longer growing season. We have a shorter winter because we are further south on the globe. Um, so we have one of the longest growing seasons in the world of wine, you know, shorter dormancy. So that's really interesting too. We have a really long flavor development period, uh, long hang time on, on, on the vine. So to me, um, those two things are what makes the entire county uh, unique. Ruben, what am I missing? Uh I, I think you covered the, how you say before, east west uh, long hills to running. So that's the unique part of the San Inez Valley that allows us to grow different varieties and have a really long growing season allows us to really ripen the fruit. We also, the cold nights uh, is really good for us because it won't. It won't spike the, the sugar and the and the vines too much, so we get really ripe fruit and the low sugar level, which means low alcohol in the wine. Yeah, I think it's something that's really unique about kind of the area that you're in. I mean, Santa Barbara County covers such a large swath of land, but if we kind of narrow things down a little bit, within all of this, we've got. So real quick, just to back up, so the the larger AVA, which work began on that in the in in the really early 1980s. So that was kind of an all-encompassing AVA, Santinez Valley, um, just to differentiate from the Central Coast. And that, and that was done by, you know, that first generation that began in the 70s. So uh, Sanford, Zaka Mesa, um, and I think actually Firestone was the main guy behind the Sentinels Valley AVA. Hmm. And and it was just to kind of create a wine country in Santa Barbara County. Now there are five 
actual AVAs. So the two on the coast for Pinot Noir and to a lesser degree Chardonnay are Santa Maria in the north and Santa Rita Hills in the south. Then, uh, and Santa Rita Hills actually just uh, enlarged itself towards Ballard Canyon to the east. Hmm. And so you jump right over the 101 freeway and you hit Ballard Canyon. Then you have the newest AVA, the Los Olivos district, which is kind of a sheltered gravelly area in between Ballard Canyon and finally Happy Canyon to the east. Now, one very, very important fact that doesn't get enough attention, that first generation, and I mentioned a few of those players that began planting in 1972, um, you know, and I consider the first generation, the 70s and the 80s. My dad planted in 1990. He was on the on the spearhead of the second generation of planting. Um, but the first generation, they, they focused on exactly what you mentioned about it, getting one degree Fahrenheit warmer with every mile you travel inland. Um, so if you're somewhere in Center of the Hills, you're probably going to be 70 degrees. And if you're in Happy Canyon, you're going to be 90. Yeah. Now, that is true, but only for peak heat. And because the wind rushes through all afternoon, the, all the vines in the county actually feel much cooler than that peak heat would tell you. The the other thing is that at night, the low temperature point gets one degree cooler as you move inland per mile. Hmm. So you have an insane extreme in Happy Canyon where you can peak out at 100 during July and then 40 at night. Wow. Uh, Ballard Canyon, we average a 40 degree diurnal shift. And that's very interesting for what you can and can't grow. We believe most vintages were too extreme for Pinot Noir, but just five miles to the west, um, they have a tighter uh, swing, you know, maybe 28 degree swing every day, mm -hmm. and Pinot Noir can still thrive there. Um, so the hardier Rhone varietals do great in Ballard Canyon because they're tougher um, and they like to get beat up. Mm -hmm. You know, the more they have to work, the more dynamic they are. Syrah is the perfect example of that. Syrah was bred in the wind tunnel in the constant mistral of the Northern Rhone, yeah. um, which is why we love it in Ballard Canyon. I think that's a good transition point into talking about Syrah that you have planted and how it works within that climate. Yeah, Ruben figured out through a lot of uh, vineyard investigation that um, because Syrah is so hardy, the, uh, the stomata, the veins on the back of the leaf, uh, continue to photosynthesize in our wind. It, it's a great uh, mutation of the Syrah vine, uh, probably leading back, you know, from the Northern Rhone that it had to survive in the wind tunnel. Um, so Ruben, um, I forget what year he can tell us, he, um, he began pressure bombing. He began checking how often the leaves of the Syrah were actually pulling for water hmm. and he would check every 10 minutes every day and he figured out that the, the the vines actually were only pulling for water right in the late morning when the fog had burned off but before the wind had kicked up and then once the wind kicked up the vines weren't pulling for water anymore Ruben what year were you doing those tests uh that's uh I do it from 2004 to 2008. Narrow every day, I narrow more close. And by now, it's only like about two hours at the day where, when the pine feels stressed. And, but they got 22 hours to recover. And the wind, uh, it doesn't pull much from the vine because it's, it's hard leaves, hard, hard vine. The, the leaves will block the wind from the fruit. And uh, 
One thing that I find now uh, special from Sierra and Ballard Canyon, that we, we cannot ripen a lot of fruit for vine. It's very important for the quality of the fruit that we, we have to have a very little fruit for vine. I figured out that it, it doesn't work in Ballard Canyon because we don't have a lot of heat. So the vine only, only have it, uh, you know, six hours every day to accumulating sugar and the fruit from, from the sun they get into leaves. So we don't, because we have a really cold nice, the vine won't produce more sugar. So then if we get to, uh, if we don't ripen the fruit in September, the day is getting short. So it's less sun, less light to the vines. So they're not ripening, they keep the fruit there, but they, they don't accumulate more sugar. So it's very important to have it uh, very low yields, you know, very little fruit. So how are you kind of managing that, Ruben? Like, how are you getting those grapes to the level of physiological ripeness that you need them to? So Ruben, Ruben alluded to it, but like the most important thing in our farming um, is our ability not to irrigate a lot. Correct. And even our young vines have to live every year uh, for months at a time without any irrigation. Um, and, and that's why Ruben did all that testing. So in Ballard Canyon, because we don't irrigate, the vines actually have a memory that they didn't get water last year. Hmm. So they naturally set a very low crop. Um, so ideally, the vines actually will manage their own vigor and their own crop size every year. Um, knowing that they're not going to be given the, these big energy surges in the form of, of overnight irrigations all summer. Um, so the, the key to our natural quality and the natural balance of, of the vines leading to a balanced wine um, is that lack of irrigation. So um, it's a pretty amazing departure from kind of the, the academic Californian approach. Um, and we have Ruben to thank for that. Yeah. Other thing that we been do it uh, here in the Storming Vineyard is uh, we, we increase the bite density, especially in Sierra. Uh, you know, we do a lot of new plantings. Uh, maybe I jump in a little bit ahead, but uh, the, the new plantings is amazing for me to see what the vine really wants to do it. So getting into that a little bit, Ruben, you were talking about how it's higher density plantings. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, for y'all, that's around 6,000 vines per acre, right? You know, Stolman, we, we start planting at uh, 900 vines per acre. And then we went to 2,000 vines per acre. And then we plant in block when it's 3,000 vines per acre, six foot rows, you know, two and a half uh, feet between the vines. We're still able to run in tractors and farming by tractors. But when the period and uh, Jessica start here, they really want to go to to other level uh, of quality and farming fruit. Uh, so that's when we went to the 6,000 vines per acre, all farming by hand and head pruning vines. And, is, and, and the funny thing about this is most of the farmers, uh, mm. When we're talking about that many vines, they think it was gonna double the tons per acre. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that we've not been doing here. We double the bite density. We're still getting two or three tons per acre. That's really unique. We see the difference in the wine. We see the difference in the vine. And for me, that's gonna be the vines that last 
a hundred years here in the valley. Yeah. And just to just to clarify, um, where Ruben gave uh, Jess and I a little too much credit there. So the history of of these vineyards that are planted at six thousand line per acre, own rooted, um, head pruned. Um, that actually, the beta test happened uh, when Ruben went to France for the first time in 2006, and he came home and uh, built a, a one-acre vineyard on our steepest hill overlooking Ballard Creek, um, identically to what he saw in Cote Roti. So um, posts are diagonal coming to one point, so two two vines actually are trained up to one point, just like Cote Roti. And um, their own rooted, which you can't get away with in Kodoti because of the flock Syrah threat. But we actually have the majority of our Syrah own rooted because we feel like we're too arid for the flock Syrah root louse to actually be happy in our vineyard. Um, we don't think it would grow, it would live long enough to grow to a life phase where it would actually take out the entire vineyard. Um, and allegedly, the the vine material came from Kodorti, although we don't have proof of that. Um, and because we fell in love with that wine, which we called uh, Ruben's Flock, because it's all Ruben's idea, um, we then planted uh, allegedly Cornos material um, in in that fashion, um, allegedly Serene material, so pre-clonal material from uh, from Kodorti, allegedly, and some other really cool um, um, material that we think will redefine the quality of, of Syrah. And then Ruben actually planted its own vineyard. Uh, so my family gave the Solarzano family four acres of the greater uh, ranch uh, behind their home. So their backyard, they actually own. And Ruben planted a four acre vineyard, again, own rooted at that 6,000 vine per acre density. And Ruben planted a field blend there um, that we call Sun and Earth. Um, and that's uh, Syrah, uh, Grenache, and Mouvedra. Mouvedra dominant, actually. Um, so the only two wines that we're, we're actually have, we've already bottled um, from these new plantings are Rubens Block and Sun and Earth. And most of these new wines are going to be in an, in an all new brand, um, which is a pun off uh, Le, uh, Le Grand Place uh, parcel in Cote Rotis. So we're calling it uh, the Great Places, and they're just the really special exposures high altitude, a little bit of clay over uh, limestone, really steep. Um, so yeah, we're really excited about the newest chapter of, of our company. Awesome. Yeah. That's super rad. And Ruben, how'd you pick the name Sun and Earth for uh, for the vineyard? Uh, I We try first, uh, try using my last name, Solorzano, and it's already taken okay. for a tequila brand. Yeah, but uh, oh, man. We, we can always say that name. So, uh, San Enor is kind of the uh, weird translation of the Solorzano. Uh, the kind of Solorzano in the weird side means uh, San Enor. So, that's kind of how cool. my, uh, my grandfather uh, called him and his family, like, yeah, we we the farmers of the sun, we farming in the sun, and we farming the earth. So, uh, that we cool. talk about posted the name and I'm, I'm, yeah i'm pretty excited and happy for for the name yeah. that's exciting that's rad well i think it would be really great to talk a little bit about uh the la quadrilla project what it is and maybe how it started yeah so when my dad bought our property in 1990 he actually tried to buy it in 1988 but the economy was a little too healthy and um 
had to wait for, <laughs> for 1990. There was a little hiccup and he talked the old cattle rancher into, uh, into a price he could afford. But my dad had spent all of the 1980s and even before uh, trying to research as much as he could about California viticulture and, and, and wine. And one thing that he got really bummed out about was that all these wineries he loved were employing migrant crews for a week or two during pruning and a week or two during harvest. And he knew enough about, you know, being in California for a long time that the problem with migrant labor isn't the fact that people are going to move to where there's work. Uh, the problem is that the whole family moves around. So if the kids are traveling with mom and dad for different crops, they're never going to go to school, they're never going to get an education, they can't participate in the American way of the first generation coming coming here, working their butt off, and then giving that second generation the American dream, the opportunity, the chance to get a higher education, to be a professional. Um, so when my dad was able to, to buy the vineyard, um, he uh, he told Ruben that if his dream of, of jumping off and buying land and planting vines was about to come true, he wanted it to positively affect everybody involved. Um, and he asked Ruben to figure out a way to employ people year round. And he, he told Ruben he wanted to know everybody, he wanted to know their children, and he wanted to be able to go to sleep at night. Um, assured that they were living local, that they had stability, um, that they were happy and healthy. Um, so that was a great privilege for Ruben that he could offer folks a full-time job, a career, rather than yeah. work for a day or a week. Um, and Ruben ran with it. And um, as as we kind of matured, as as you know, because at first we had so much work to do. You know, we had to turn this you know fallow ranch into a vineyard, plant block after block after block. But as we fell into a rhythm, that's when Ruben began giving the crew their own quadra, their own block, um, to get them proactively engaged. And that was really important for first generation Mexican people too, which Ruben can talk to, can talk about. As Ruben came over here, following his older brothers, Ruben's the youngest out of eleven kids. Um, and his older brothers, Marcos and Enrique, were already here working in the vineyards. Um, so Ruben started as just a field worker and uh, luckily met Jeff Newton through his brother Marcos. And Jeff Newton is like the godfather of Santa Barbara viticulture. And, and luckily, Jeff recognized how bright Ruben was and uh, told my dad, Tom, you need to hire this guy. This is your new vineyard manager. Um, so Ruben uh, officially got his green card in 94. And so that's when he officially became our vineyard manager. Uh, my dad was able to sponsor him. And it's a real bummer that that opportunity for an employer to sponsor a really hard worker is no longer there for us in this political climate. It is impossible for me, even if I meet the smartest guy or woman I've ever met in my life, I can't do anything to help them um, get a green card, which is really, really lame. Uh, but luckily back then my dad could, and today Ruben and Maria are both full citizens and, and you know, Ruben's the godfather of both mm -hmm. my sons. So there's a happy ending um, in this case. But yeah, when, when Ruben told my dad about the project, my dad fell in love with it because the one thing that seemed hollow is that every Friday afternoon barbecue, none of the crew drank wine. So my dad and Ruben would drink wine, but I would, you know, I was a teenager and I'd be drinking beer with the crew. And then, as, you know, the sun would set, a couple of bottles of tequila would show, yeah. show up and they were great parties and everybody was super proud of what they were doing, but they weren't enjoying the fruit of their labor. So when Ruben told my dad about the whole training block, um, my dad loved it. And uh, those first vintages of the Quadria wine um, were, were all, all of the wine from that two acre training block um, was given back to the members without a back label. So they had to drink it. They couldn't resell it. 
Um, but we figured out uh, there's just too much wine um, for them to even find a place mm -hmm. to put it. So we began selling it. And then when I took over in 09, um, I told Ruben that we had to make the program much bigger. So today it's uh, at minimum 10% of our production and all the profit is given back to the crew in the form of uh, a year-end bonus divided by seniority to really reward the people who have worked here for, for years. Ruben, what was that like those first couple of years creating the Quadria program? and getting your crew to help in the, not just working, but farming mentality. What was that process like? Yeah, it was, uh, first of all, it was really great experience for me. Uh, see uh, how they changed. Uh, the first year we we gave it the, the block for day to farming and I don't give any advisor. So they, because they never drink wine, they leave. Uh, so much fruit they you're getting the vines they they want to see the clusters huge like yeah i think it's gonna make a better wine they look beautiful but mm -hmm. they testing the wine a year later uh most of the guys is the first time they testing wine and even to his own wine they move his head say this is not <laughs> not the best oh, man. so the following year we give you other other section and and they came to me say like ruben tell us how we can make this wine better Immediately they start talking wine, not grapes. So it's a experience for me. And then in the second year, they mm -hmm. they start to care about every single block, not only his block. When they testing his second wine, they say, Oh yeah, now we are farming. Now we can make a good wine. And they start farming all the blocks, really cares about quality in the wine. They they forgot about like quantity of the, of, the, of the fruit. They should start focus on what's the best quality in the wine. And, mm -hmm. you know, the balance, something that value is very small. So it's the rumors start to run around and like everybody wants to work for Storming Vineyard and they, and they know now they, to work here, they has to be, you know, mm -hmm. focused and, and be good workers. So it's really great experience for me. And to be honest, allows me to, have a better people and, uh, you know, and the people, you know, have it here for many years, which is, is good. It's less training and, and they care about the, the wine. That's a really amazing thing that happened. Yeah. Yeah. From, from like May, uh, all the way up until harvest, we have a barbecue every Friday for the crew and, you know, their families can come out and, and we really want the crew to feel like, you know, their ranch is theirs to enjoy, you know, if their kid's having a birthday or, you know, whatever, they're free to use their little picnic area and everything. And um, now on, on this Friday barbecue is nobody, nobody brings beer. <laughs> everybody drinks, everybody drinks wine. And it's really funny to see like, you know, other people will show up with, with, you know, different wines and, um, often the crew won't even want to open. <laughs> so you'll have a lot of empty bottles and then some bottles that like maybe a couple of people taste and say, no, no, that's not good. And they're, they're very discerning now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been an amazing journey to watch. That's awesome. That's super cool. So the program started over a decade ago. The first commercial vintage of La Quadria where you were selling it was 2009, right? Well, nine, nine was when it became really significant. Yeah. Then, and then I think, it was probably 06 when we began selling a little bit of it just because we were giving the crew 
20 cases of wine each and it was just ridiculous you know like they were filling up their entire houses with wine um <laughs> and so we, so but it was really only enough to give to our wine club and then 09 mm -hmm. was the vintage where ruben um when we got refinanced he, he told me i'm out of excuses so i have to come down and meet his whole family all all 10 other kids so i had met a few of his siblings yeah. and met his mom and dad and everything and, and i met the extended family of all 15 crew members we had. And I met thousands of people and they all knew my life story, my wife, Jessica, her story, my dad, they, they had so much pride. And as an employer, you know, I knew that a lot of money was going back home to help grandma out, you know, that type of thing. But then to meet the folks that were so influenced by my dad's very fundamental basic decision, let's take care of our people. Um, kind of blew my mind and that's when I told Ruben we got to make the program way bigger you know it was already cool what we we're doing and you know throwing a little bit of money back in a bonus but you know making it 13 14 15 percent of our total production and giving the profit back to the crew um, you know was something that I felt would would be much more significant and it's sort of a shame that that more wineries haven't haven't followed our footsteps because the the marketing goodwill has been so amazing that people w want to support Quadria. Um, and not only that, but they want to support all of our wines as they know, you know, that we're taking care of our people and that we've built this amazing, hardworking family. So it's, uh, it's definitely something I'm really proud of. And now with the new plantings where we have 13 acres that we farm entirely by hand, we're going the total opposite direction of the rest of the industry. And now we're up to 28 full-time people um, so I'm, I'm even more proud and we kept everybody, um, on full payroll through COVID and just, you know, luckily it's a big vineyard, so it's very easy to, to spread out. But, um, you know, mm -hmm. even before I'd heard of, of PPP, I, I was dead set on keeping everybody full time. Yeah. And maybe that's a question you both can answer is, um, you know, I haven't, worked at a winery, but I'm thinking in terms of like keeping a full-time year-round labor force compared to bringing people in to harvest when, you know, you think you need help. Logistically, what challenges does that create? So uh, the, uh, the the main thing here is, uh, you know, keep it the same employees every year, year after year after year. Uh, mm -hmm. We normally take it two weeks vacations in December, but uh, we change it helps us to change the farming practice that we do it here so we farming everything organic so we you know we haul weeds when we need it uh we also uh and uh when it's slow down it's not much work in the vineyard we always find some projects for the crew to keep it busy but we also pre-pruning the whole vineyard you know in december and january we pre-pruning so it's it's many different things but it's it's always like really great experience for me to see like also like all the members are la quadrilla yeah it is it is a little more expensive you know because we keep it people all all, all year around employ it uh the members they know when they can take it a few more days of the week off and like uh, because harvest is always harvest always too much work so they know the after harvest they can you know they can take a week or they can take a few more days to spend with the family and and it's they all knows that you know we be okay when that time if they need to take more time 
in. Uh, and they, you know, we take two weeks in December and everybody come back in January and then we keep going again. And it's a different project. We always, mm -hmm. for the last 10 years, we always been having like a block that we need to replanting, you know, a block that we need to treating differently or change the, the trailers in the field. So, so we use it that time when it's slow down to do a project that's going to be for the year or the following year. Totally. I had a really good learning experience. My, my very first vintage when I had taken over in 09, that we had rain coming and, and you know, a lot of pretty much the rest of the fruit hanging was ready to be picked. And Ruben and I were, talked about options. And I decided to go with the option of bringing in another crew. Um, so, you know, Ruben's a partner in Coastal Vineyard Care, the, you know, the vineyard management company that farms all of the best vineyards in Santa Barbara. Um, so he, he has access to, you know, other vineyard crews for the other vineyards. So we went ahead and brought in another crew for the two nights before the rain came and finished harvest. And I was so happy with the decision because I was driving the fruit truck that year because Maria, Ruben's wife, who's our typical, uh, you know, forewoman, she's typically in charge of the crew. Um, she was, she had just given birth to their son, Omar. Um, so I was driving the fruit truck, that, that whole vintage. And as I came back empty from my last load to the winery, these big raindrops started hitting the, hitting the windshield. And I was just so elated that we had finished before, before the rain. Um, but then Ruben told me that our crew was actually really upset that I had brought in another crew into their vineyard and that they would have worked, you know, 48 hours straight to finish harvest and that they could have done it. Um, so I, <laughs> you know, my mood immediately changed. I had to apologize and, and tell the crew, uh, you know, don't worry if that won't become the norm, I won't do it again. And, 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 you know, um, so yeah, that was, the, that was a pretty big wake up call to just how dedicated and loyal and, and proud the crew is of, of what they're doing. Um, and, and really, I mean, the benefit of course, you know, the, actually one thing that I'm really happy about is that we can't actually tell you how much more expensive it is to employ full time because we know how much faster and how much more we can multitask having the exceptional people that we do have rather than trying to always train a new crew and micromanage them, have more foremen watching them. So I'm, I'm glad I don't know just how expensive it is. Uh, but what I do know is how pristine the fruit coming into the winery is because we can work with the vines all year. And, and the vines are only touched by hand, even in the old blocks where, where we can weed with the tractor and we can pull the fruit trailer through the vines and it comes to actually touching them. We only, we only touch every vine in the vineyard by hand. Um, and then of course there's some blocks where we can't get a tractor in there at all. Um, but I mean, it, the quadria defines every other wine that we make. And just the fact that we don't have to sulfur any of the red wine fruit coming in to the winery. I mean, if, if you have any bee damage, if you have any fungal issue, you're going to have to take care of that when the fruit comes into the winery. But year in and year out, um, the crew just gives the winemaking team perfect fruit. Um, as far as, you know, I'm not saying that we're making perfect wines, but as far as the condition of the fruit, um, and we can make amazing decisions in the winery to have naked native fermentations when you're getting all of the wine's primary flavor development, you know, we're not adding anything, um, which I think 
defines the profile of our Syrahs and our other red wines. And now we're making a lot of wines completely sans souf, which we couldn't do. I think that's why natural wine gets a bad rap. Because, you know, if, you, if you're dealing with flawed fruit or a dirty winery, um, you know, you're, you're going to have issues. But, um, yeah, the crew uh, alleviates the risk of, of um, any, any issues coming from the vineyard. So it sounds like because the crew knows these vines so well, La Cordria has allowed you to create new cuvées under the like so fresh line and that wouldn't be possible had they not had the experience, you know, really getting their hands on with the fruit and that seeing the whole process through has really allowed them to help you make better better wines and more interesting wines maybe. Right, the the care that they can put into the vineyard just, you know, like they, they identify problems without having, you know, we don't get out there every day. Like, okay. Today we're looking for uneven ripeness. The crew already knows, you know, and, and we yeah. could be, you know, tucking shoots or something and they're already taking out errant growth. And, you know, each crew member can, can foresee, you know, a potential problem, you know, like, and mm-hmm. so we're, we're doing two or three, four or five different, different things every time we walk through a row. Um, and yeah, and, and 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 with with the fresh wines, you know, picking at at really high acidity, bottling early, uh, not adding any sulfur. Um, there's no margin for error. Like if you think about the other way of making wine, of picking really ripe, raisinating uh, fruits that you know needs to be sulfured coming in, and then we'll have you know years of barrel age. Um, you know, you have a lot more latitude there. Um, but if you're making the fresh wines that are going to be bottled in January, pure, um, there's no there's no room for error or, and there's no room for imperfections in the fruit. Yeah, so some of the wines that are under that so fresh line, right? You've got Love You Bunches, which is the Carbonic Sangiovese. You've got the Syrah So Hot Right Now or the Syrah So Hot and then Crunchy Roasty are, are some of some of the wines that are under that label, yeah? Yeah, the Gamay and then the Own-Rooted Field Blend uh, rounded out. And the Own-Rooted Field Blend is actually a really interesting study where that's all fruit from the new 6,000 vine breaker blocks. So the most concentrated, intense, crazy fruit and uncrushed, right? Carbonic fermentation, yeah. so no touch in the winery. So we're only letting that concentration sing uh, from the juice. We're not trying to do a long, cold soak maceration, pump overs. We're not trying to extract further. Mm-hmm. We're just giving you the raw energy of you know these two tiny bunches per vine. That's crazy. So something that's really interesting to me is the amount of change that's gone on at the winery. Like you guys aren't content to just make the same wines year in and year out. It seems like there's always a really new, exciting cuvee on the way, or there's a new project being done. You guys are definitely staying busy. And I'm curious for each of you, what keeps you going and trying something new? Like where you're finding inspiration? Pete, I know you mentioned that Ruben took a trip to France. So Ruben, maybe talk a little bit about that trip to France that you took. And then Pete, I know that you enjoy wines from all over the world, but you've referenced a couple of times now, you know, producers in the Rhone that you really enjoy. So it'd be cool to hear kind of what your benchmarks are, kind of where your guiding lights are. <laughs> Ruben, do you want me to go first? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And actually, uh, Ruben and then our head winemaker, Kyle Knapp, and our assistant winemaker, Matt Nokas, and I, the four of us were uh, just in, in the Northern Rhone uh, in June of 2019. And that was a really important trip for us, all four of us. And um, one thing that I'm really proud of is like 
you know, when we were in the 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 cellar at Klopp, at Gonan, at Munia Perial, um, you can't even remember all the appointments, but like we all would look up at each other and make eye contacts like on the same barrel. Like we're like, oh shit, that's it. That that's the Holy Grail right there. Um and it was and then when you know the minute we got back, we were on different flights and, and Ruben and I got back a little bit later, I think. Um, you know, I think the next day we were in our barrel room doing the same thing. Like just we couldn't we couldn't wait to like, <laughs> you know, while the those wines that we tasted in Northern Rhone were so fresh, we needed to jump into our own cellar and taste together. Um, but it, it is such a luxury to all be on the same page. We all have the same Holy grail and, um, you know, about four times a year we do, you know, really comprehensive Syrah tastings, um, probably most heavily in St. Joseph and Cornas, but certainly Cote and Hermitage makes it in there. And then we always do bring out, um, our own Syrah. And that's one reason why I'm so proud of, of the three different carbonic Syrah versions, um, that we do Syrah so hot, so, so hot right now and crunchy roasties that, you know, we found a way to make Syrah in the same weight class as the Northern Rhone. If we are extracting from our super thick skins, let's keep in mind our skins have to ward off our intense solar radiation from that Southern latitude. And then they have to insulate against the 40 degree drop at night. So we naturally have thicker skins than you're going to find in the more moderate, moderate temperature of the Northern Rhone. And we're not getting rainfall. Like, like I've never been to the Northern Rhone when it, doesn't rain like my impression is apart from like oh three and one other vintage you know in the past 20 years every year they get a lot of rainfall um so we don't get any rainfall in ballard canyon and we're not irrigating you know for months at a time um our concentration is just gonna be totally different um so when we do crush our syrah you know those wines can be really tannic um, so they have to be about 14% alcohol to have enough glycerol richness to envelop the tannin. But if we don't extract it all, we can make a delicate ethereal Syrah, again, in the same weight class as Northern Rome. So, you know, I definitely have a bunch of dragons that, that I feel like I chase. Um, but, you know, we, we taste magic in, in quite a few of our, our cuvées. And, you know, the other thing that, I've really fallen in love with is the, the mashability quotient. Um, if I, I don't love a wine unless I want to drink a whole bottle of it. And I think that's, that's an issue that we forget about. I think in, in the industry when we're so all about just tasting, but like, do I want to sit down with my wife and, and, mm-hmm. and drink a bottle of that? And I think the, the two, the two wines that I've drunk the most this summer are the Combe Trousseau and the GDG, the Gamay. Um, I love chilled, delicious red wines. And I think that's been the coolest evolution of Stoltman. When I took over, we only made big, tannic, monster Syrah that, you know, the critics loved, but they needed to age for a long time to be yummy. And now we're making, we're hitting this fine, you know, laser sharp, pure, balance out of the gate and i love to drink my wines <laughs> taking up those allocations and quick clarification real quick is that uh between those different cuvées that we were talking about syrah so hot syrah so hot right now and crunchy roasty cr- crunchy roastery in- incorporates a little bit of viognier yeah yeah and that that enables us to push the early picking calls even harder 
um, mm -hmm. knowing that we have like the Viognier cushion to, to throw in on top of the straw. Um, mm -hmm. And it's less about co-fermentation because everything's carbonic um, and we're mm -hmm. not trying to pull color, but um, just having that Viognier at a little bit elevated sugar uh, uh, enables us to pick the straw even crunchier, even higher acid. Um, and that wine's really cool. We're Love You Bunches. It's all about the mashability, right? Serve Love You Bunches mm -hmm. out of the fridge. You know, the crew, they call it Rose con cojones. <laughs> but then all of a sudden you get to a carbonic Syrah, even on the entry level where crunchy is, and boom, like right on the nose, right in the front and mid palate, you get that, you know, Syrah tell of olive, mm -hmm. you know, black olive, green olive, olive tapenade, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> like, holy shit, this is Syrah. It just has this yeah. fruit purity from carbonic. And, um, you know, the main thing, like, I, you know, I, I've been talking about this lately, like back when I traveled a lot, I would, and especially like older generation wine buyers wanted to hate the so fresh line, the carbonic line, because they thought they hated carbonic fermentation. And it's like, I have to like, you know, beat the drum of like, no, 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 you hate inoculated one day quick carbonic fermentations popular for like cheap Beaujolais Nouveau when they have to turn and burn and, you know, they don't want to pay for air freight. So they're trying to get Beaujolais Nouveau all over the world by mid November. Um, but if, if you have perfect fruit, that the crew gives us, we can do a native naked carbonic fermentation. So it's much slower and you pick up a lot more nuance um, and a much different fruit purity than you would get with just a really hot, fast inoculated fermentation. So that's a huge deal for us that we can, we can do carbonic fermentation without inoculating. And again, we can only do that because we have, you know, pristine fruit that the, that Ruben and the crew gives us and that Ballard Canyon gives us. Hell yeah. So Ruben, your, your benchmarks for, uh, like wine, like kind of over the, I guess it's been what, three decades since you came to Santa Barbara County to start as a vineyard worker and then worked your way up to where you are now, kind of what's been your guiding light all those years. So when I came here, the, uh, 1989, you start working on the grapes when my brother, Marcos, and I uh, started the installment in 94. And uh, for me, it's 94. It was the first year when I really start enjoy the vines, enjoy what I do it. Uh, try my first wine uh, in 93. And I would say, yeah, I will keep my beer and tequila with me. <laughs> uh, lucky in 94 uh we start uh you know trying wines the installment making sashi and then uh you know i i really like it the different wines and and yeah. figure out what i can find in the wine and what making me thinking about what will be the best thing in my life is where for something that can bring that to the table when I have a dinner, when I have my friends, when I have my family. So that's really cool for me. And, it, you know, I started doing uh, different uh, pruning methods, different uh, leafing, different positioning, a lot of different things to create in different wines. So when I do the work in the vineyard and I go and try the wines, I say, oh, my God, this is good. You know, you got to keep doing it because it's working, the chosen the wine. So immediately that's when I start saying like, you know, I'm not going to farm in grapes anymore. It's going to farm in wines because mm. it's really cool is 
to see what I do in the vineyard, what I do when my guys, my crew, and everybody is chosen the wine. And, uh, you know, my, uh, I call my the lucky guy because I able to work with a lot of people, a lot of consultants from all over the world, like Alberto Antonini worked in Stolman for many years. Uh, I worked with Michelle Roland and Honara. Uh, I worked for a couple guys in Napa, like, Napa is very interesting for me because they feel they influence Sunnyside Valley so much. And to probably the last five years when we figured out that, you know, Napa is different than here and we can do it different wines. We can make it uh, more elegant wines, uh, more nice and drinkable wines. And they, they're really good at what they do it. And then, and then we figured out this, uh, we can make it different wines and, and the different, totally different wines and really good. Uh, my experience in, in French is has been really good. I, you know, I went there in uh, 2006, and then I went uh, a couple years ago went uh, the Honara people. Uh, and last year went uh, Pierre and uh, Matt and Kyle are there. The, we, the four together for me is the more amazing trip because we we see the vineyards, we testing the wine. We talking about marketing, how the work, you know, how the consumers like the wines and what we see in those wines and then go to the vineyard and see what work they do. And it brings me so many different things because I it tells me that that people has been doing so many, so much work in the beginning of the vines to make the vines working for them later. And I feel like in the early years in California, we we do the opposite because we such a California people. We we wanna create in everything. We wanna make it. We wanna feel like this is what I make. This is myself. We do this. The pines are a little different. They they like to get directions, but they don't like to be manipulating too much. So that's my main thing that I learned from French. They they create and they they help the vines to get to the point they want, but they not manipulating the vines too much. So and the main thing is uh, get the small vines that produce a very little fruit. Uh, I I never went to places where they they wanna create too much fruit. It's always about you know this this much fruit per vine. For me, that's the very important thing. The whole world should be doing so they can, uh, so we allow us to keep having really good wines and hopefully not really high prices. That you know, it's, it's really great for me to see that you know, we're creating wines that can many, many people can afford it to buy. Yeah, you know, I think, I think that's part of the reason you know, Stoltman's always succeeded on every wine list that I've put it on is that you know, dollars for donut, like pound for pound, like those wines deliver, you know, whether it's a really crushable, you know, rosé, like the one that y'all make, or whether it's the lovey bunches, or even, you know, the trousseau, like those wines are wines that people do just want to drink, they want to enjoy and have. And even the La Quadria bottling year in and year out, like, it's refreshing, it's bright, it's got density, but it's still light on its feet. Um, there's a reason it does as well in Texas as it does. And well, cheers, guys. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Ruben, it was so nice to officially meet you. This was great. Thank you. Nice to meet you. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of By the Glass. Uh, if your mouth was watering anywhere near as much as mine was when Ruben and Pete were talking about the wines of uh, the Rhone Valley or their own rosé with cojones, the uh, Love You Bunches, uh, Carbonic Sangiovese, if any of those wines or their own Syrahs sound really appealing, you can buy them on their website. They've got an amazing wine club and... Uh, if you go to a boutique wine shop, I'm sure they can get them for you too. So killer, killer bottles, uh, great conversation. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you with another episode next week.